Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Friday, January 27th, and if it's a Friday afternoon, it's got to be that was the week with my good friend Keith Tier, the CEO of Signal Rank and the author of the That Was the Week tech uh, summary newsletter, a must-have for anyone in the know. If you want to be in the know, you've got to be on That Was the Week newsletter with Keith Tier. This week, Keith suggested he wasn't quite sure how to lead uh, tech news. It could have been social media, could have been chat GPT, or it could have been the decline in values. And he chose the third, the decline in values. Where, and he led uh, his, uh, his newsletter with unicorns are dying. Keith, not everyone's a Silicon Valley insider. So before, you, you, before we uh, understand why or how unicorns are dying, you might explain what a unicorn actually is in tech terms. Yeah. So a unicorn is a company that gets valued by a private investor. Uh, whilst it's still a private company at, at a billion dollars or more. Um, and there's two kinds of unicorns. There's unicorns that are that are still in that stage of being private, but there's also former unicorns that are now public companies. Uh, so there's if you add them together, you get uh, something like 1,400 current unicorns in the ecosystem. And your wife, Janae uh, Tier, um who works with Crunchbase is an authority on the number and the development of uh, of, uh, of unicorns. And, and, and in the newsletter this week, you suggest that Janae is reporting uh, that they are, quote unquote, on the chopping block. What's happening with unicorns this week? On the chopping block. By the way, that graphic you just showed was made by artificial intelligence. I, I typed into Dali unicorns <laughs> on the chopping block, and that's what it gave me. Now, does that mean for people listening, you're not going to see this? It's a pretty pathetic uh, slide. Does that mean that AI is 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 overrated, or is 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 going to make all artists put all artists out of work? Well, that one isn't going to put any artists out of work, is it? It's, it's a pretty, <laughs> pretty poor poor attempt. But ha however, it does depict what I asked for. So. And you got another one which is actually even more absurd: thinning the herd. I don't think this is yours. It's what. Uh, Tommy, the tank engine following a, a, a herd of unicorns. So uh, we, we are not, uh, there are no Rembrandts in this show, that's for sure, or Vermeers. Um, so what's happening with unicorns? Why are they on the chopping block, even if the chopping block's a bit cheesy? Well, you, you could think of a unicorn looked at from the point of view of its investors. The unicorn is like a bank account with money in it. And, and as these companies have uh, grown in valuation, the bank account is looking super great. And the investors, the venture capitalists, report to their investors, you know, our portfolio is worth filling the blank. Um, well, those valuations are now going down uh, quickly. So the bank accounts are shrinking. And the venture capitalists have to go back to their investors and say, well, you know, we said that our portfolio was worth N. Well, now it's worth N divided by, you know, some, some div div divisor like two or three. And so it's a massive uh, paper loss compared to previous highs. By the way, that 
it probably still is a game because they would have paid a lot less for it when they entered for the most part, unless, unless the investor invested last. The last investor literally has lost money um, and, and a lot of money. So we know that unicorns are inventions, they're not real, but who's actually hurting from this? Uh, I assume a lot of the startup entrepreneurs, they're at least on paper, they're, not, they're no longer worth hundreds of millions of dollars, although none of it's cashed out anyway. Yeah, but it's still, um, there's still some reality to it. I've, I've actually had two unicorns in my startup career. One was EasyNet back in England in the 90s, and the other was Real Names here in the Bay Area. What about Now TV? Now TV is a future unicorn, Andrew. We all know that. <laughs> we all know that. Um, so, so, you know, neither of my unicorns made me a billionaire. Let's just start there. Uh, or even a hundred millionaire. Um, uh, one of them, I sold my shares too early, but the other one, more, more pertinent to this era, lost value during the bubble bursting in 2000. And th the truth is, as the founder, you're still worth, tens of millions of dollars even after that on paper. So honestly, it isn't much of a loss. It's a real loss to the people who put money in most recently because they might have written a $100 million check and the most they could get back now is probably 20 or $30 million. That, that is a real loss of real money. So, so the ones hurting are the later investors, people like Tiger Global, who we've talked about before on this show, Insight Partners, um, you know, a, a fidelity and the like. But they, don't they sort of claw it back? Your your new startup, Keith, um, Signal Rank is an AI for determining the value of second or third round investments. Don't they simply come back and say, well, it was worth a billion first round, now it's worth a hundred million, so we're gonna buy more shares and it all gets balanced out in the end? They, they definitely, do have mitigating strategies that they can use. Uh, one of those is to uh, go earlier into newer companies that are going to see more dramatic growth. But, but that said, the, the, um, the Wall Street-led valuation engine is not prepared to pay the multiples at, at an IPO. Multiples is, you know, if you've got a certain amount of revenue, they'll pay several times that revenue as, as, as the price of your shares. They're not prepared to pay the multiples anymore. So the truth is, it's a longer journey for probably smaller outcomes. How um, dramatic, Keith, is this current downturn, this crash in the valley? You've, you suggested to me when we did the That Was The Week show for your newsletter that you think it's more dramatic than the dot-com boom of 2000, which seemed to me to be enormously dramatic. I don't know how it can be any more dramatic than that since we went from... 100 to zero in about 10 minutes. Yeah, at that time, you know, using Amazon as the example, Amazon lost 98% of its worth when in, in the dot-com bubble bursting. But actually, many of the companies in the public space, uh, and these are public companies with lots of revenue, which wasn't true in, in the bubble era, um, they've lost 70 to 80% of their worth in the last six to eight months. So, so, so on the one hand, uh, okay, it's a little bit less of a decline, but it's still dramatic. But the, by the other measure, which is how much money is at work and being impacted here, it's a lot more money than was around in the bubble, a lot more. 
um, because the venture ecosystem is bigger and more mature than ever before, and uh, it forms a larger proportion of um, of uh, risk capital, often called private equity. So um, a lot more money is at risk than was uh, that was in the bubble. Relatively speaking, it's a slightly smaller loss, and you know, in the last week at least, it started to recover. Uh, inflation is going down. Um, at least the rise is slowing. Um, if not shrinking, um, and um, the stock market has had five days in a row of gains. Yeah, but that you know, this time next week you could have had five days of losses. What about the big um, layoffs? Uh, every major tech company, except for Apple, now has laid off tens of thousands of people uh, over the last few weeks. Keith, is this a big deal? I think it. I think it's um, it's got to be understood relatively. These companies are laying off between five and ten percent of their workforce. Um, they're not going bust. Um, they're, they're, they're cutting their costs uh, in order to grow their share price. You know, a share price basically is driven by margins. That is the difference between your costs and your revenues. Um, and there's two ways to do that. One is to grow your revenues. The other is to cut your costs. Growing revenues doesn't seem to be available uh, right now. So most companies are cutting costs and it's the CFO in the companies leading that with a view to uh, stabilizing the share price, if not increasing. So what you're saying is that a big company like Alphabet wants to know there's Google, it's the CFO, a woman like uh, Ruth Porat, who's running the show rather than the CEO. At least at the level of headcount, yes. I mean, I'm sure the CEO has a final uh, sign off on what what they think, but... um, it's definitely driven by cost savings more than anything else. Let's move to the, the second big story of the week. Didn't get the headlines, but it's had the headlines now almost for two or three months, which is the chat GPT thing. The, the big story this week is that Microsoft has uh, invested or reported $10 billion in OpenAI, uh, who own the chat GPT three and four platforms. How big a deal is this, Keith? Well, it, it definitely represents Microsoft investing in the idea that developers will want to integrate AI capabilities into their applications and services. Uh, the primary uh, decision Microsoft made beyond the money uh, uh, is to put OpenAI's um, and, and, uh, um, APIs into the Microsoft developer environment, Azure and Visual Studio, thus allowing developers who are building things to uh, to just call the code that would put the AI in. An example might be somebody building an app for a hospital chain, putting OpenAI into the patient sign-on prior to an appointment, uh, allowing the patient to talk to OpenAI and maybe give it some symptoms and get a provisional diagnosis. That would be possible. Uh, because OpenAI can do anything. It could also be an architect application allowing um, somebody who wants to build a home to put in various requirements and have uh, chat GPT. Or a teacher designing a new syllabus. Does this all suggest that chat GPT in contrast with some of the other hyped technologies of the last few years, Web3, cryptocurrency, that this is undeniably for real? This is about to change the world. Well, yeah, I mean, I, 
I, I for one, just to give Court, Courtney Hamilton, um, uh, um, uh, who's put a text in uh, our chat here, uh, uh, a kind of a nod. I, for one, think crypto is for real, uh, and I think Bitcoin is. But uh, that said, chat GPT is not only real, but is now. It's real now. And it, its capabilities are good enough for a lot of applications right now. And those capabilities will replace either um, human beings who previously did those roles. Customer service is an obvious example um, where you have those chat things with somebody sitting at, de at a desk. Um, but it, 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 it is real and real money will be made uh, from the things that it gets built into as well. So I, I definitely think it's real. Whereas uh, crypto, blockchain, DAOs and the like um, are real over a longer period of time if, if they mature into a replacement infrastructure. It, I think that is still an open question. So there's two, two thoughts on this. You also link um, in your newsletter to uh, one of our frequent guests on the show, uh, Gary Marcus, about AGI. He's one of the world's leading experts on AI. AGI will not happen in your lifetime. I get confused with all these different technologies. What, it's, what I understand is that people like Marcus are suggesting that AI, pure AI, is not on the horizon. But that doesn't mean that chat GPT isn't for real. Is that fair? Uh, both things are fair, although in that particular interchange that you looked at there, uh, a guy called Gary Brooch, um, Brooch is it? Yeah, Brooch. Um, he, he says to uh, Gary Marcus uh, that uh, it's called AGI means artificial general intelligence, which is uh, almost like a brain that can learn anything without needing lots of data as an input. Um, basically, AGI will not happen in our lifetime. Funnily enough, Gary Marcus, who last week played the role of a skeptic, this week plays the role of an evangelist and says, actually, I think it will, that by the end of the century, we, we human beings will have created artificial general intelligence that can do anything. Yeah, which is astonishing. At DLD a couple of weeks ago, I had dinner with a guy called Andy Kitchen, who is claiming at least, and he was a speaker at DLD, to be developing um a living brain so uh i it, it may we may see these things or may hear them or be maybe able to talk to them well before the end of the 21st century yeah. what does this all mean though today uh, you you link with an interesting funny piece actually on google versus chat gpt is this finally microsoft's opportunity to get their revenge on google for hurting Google, sir, for hurting Microsoft so much in, in, in the early 2000s? I think as an outsider, that's an easy conclusion to draw. I think the answer probably would be yes, because uh, Microsoft is showing a willingness to work with a totally new user interface for the interaction between human beings and, and, and data and intelligence. That said, Microsoft has a blind spot when it comes to search. They, they really want Bing to compete with Google. They've always wanted that. Uh, when they did a deal with me in 1998, I think it was, uh, for real names, and they put real names in the browser, they basically made a bet that you could do better than Google with a different technology. And that's also the bet they would make with chat GPT. And they poured. I mean, it's, it's not just in theory and practice. They poured 
billions, maybe even tens of billions of dollars into Bing. Yeah, and Bing's a failure. Let's just make no bones about it. I mean, it. no one uses it, do you? I, I... The only people who use it are people who don't bother changing the default if they have a Windows computer. Um, it, it, it is not as good as Google, um, and it probably never will be. Uh, and it's not as, you know, it's not as cool as Google. It's just not cool. What they should really do is close it down and say search is dead. We have now have a new way of talking to data and finding things out. That would be really earth shattering. And, and that's, that, that was actually my next question. Does chat GPT suggest if it's developed properly, particularly on these platforms like Azure, that chat, that search is dead, that we will have lived through an era of search between 2000 and 2025, and then we got a new thing, a new way of finding a way around the information economy in the late 2020s? I think, yeah, I think if you define search as putting in keywords and getting back URLs, that will become a, a diminishing sport. Nothing ever dies, as we know, with radio, but... Except uh, unicorns, Keith. Except unicorns, they do. Yeah, exactly. Um, but but search won't literally die, but it will cease to be the place that most people go to find things out. Uh, uh, it, it'll become more like, say, yellow pages. It's plan B when you can't find what you're looking for anywhere else. I think that's where it goes. And I think Google probably know that. Google are super smart, right? And at the leadership level and at every level down Especially below. Especially the legal people I've heard are very smart. I've heard that too. Yeah, very smart. Um, they, they have to be because they're dealing with uh, almost everybody who wants to kill them, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> At least they pay them properly. Um, yeah. So can Google survive just as Microsoft? I mean, let's face it. Uh, there were points where people said Microsoft was doomed. Bill Gates made his famous announcement that the internet was the new, new thing. And then he was outflanked by every new internet company. Can Google survive a post-search world? Well, again, just to restate the point first, because Courtney asked the question, Bing will not beat Google. Uh, Courtney's right. quite right on that. But Microsoft could if it gets rid of Bing. And it, it probably won't do that, by the way, Andrew. Microsoft's too conservative to get rid of Bing. It, yeah, but it, it can't be that conservative if it's putting $10 billion into OpenAI. And so, I wouldn't be surprised that in the end, just as Reid Hoffman's on the, the Microsoft board, Maybe one day Sam Altman will take over at Microsoft. He's the smartest guy in the Valley at the moment, isn't he? Uh, there's a lot of smart people. He's, he is definitely smart. You remember that we once had the headline in That Was The Week, Sam Altman is super smart, who knew? And that was about two years ago. Well, that was pre-chat GPT, so we couldn't ask yet. But in all seriousness, we all knew. We all knew. And, and, and yes, he, he is super smart. And Microsoft certainly has the capability, but it it will not embrace that strategy, I guarantee it. I'll place a bet right now that Bing is not replaced by a better solution built on ChatGPT. I mean, Larry and Sergey are now, according to the New York Times at least, engaging a lot more with Alphabet Google. They would be smart to hire Sam Altman at Google. Whoever got him, I think, would win. Finally, the third, and very much the third story of the week is social media. You said that Social media is finished, pretty much. You suggest this in um, 
you said social media, social media is tiring and over-discussed. What happened in social media this week? I didn't even notice anything. Not a lot. I mean, uh, Facebook decided that Donald Trump can make a comeback and everyone yawned. Uh, Probably Twitter, including him so. Exactly. There was a Twitter, a Twitter uh, insider tweet thread uh, from a guy called Dave Rubin, I think, um, that shone a light on what's going on inside Twitter, where Elon Musk has recognized that Twitter is nothing other than a huge um, censorship engine focused on removing anything that isn't center-left uh, from being discussed and passing things on to the state at the same time and has now formed the belief that Twitter needs to be rebuilt from a code point of view from scratch. Although he, he doesn't say he's going to do that. He thinks that's what would be required. Is that perhaps one reason why today he met with uh, the House Speaker, the new House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy? Do you, I mean, not that Kevin McCarthy understands code or building anything from scratch, but is that the kind of thing that might make the Republicans happy? Yeah, I think he, he's nodding to the fact that he wants Twitter to be open to all points of view. And the GOP, is it, do they call it the GOP or the GOP? I think GOP. It's, I think it's the GOP. The GOP, you know, uh, 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 and most of us are sympathetic to this, even though we disagree with it, has been the, the bigger victim of censorship on Twitter in the recent past. Uh, the left has pretty much had a free run. So Musk is just saying he wants to fix it and he's meeting with the people who've been the victims in his point of view. Um, so so on, on the whole, I support Musk in that. I think Twitter should be an option. Yeah, uh, me too. I mean, I'm no great, neither of us are great fans of Donald Trump, but there's no reason why he shouldn't be on these platforms. Would it be fair to say historians, when they're going to be making sense of the period we're living in, that the age of social media has been now or is being replaced by the age of chat GPT or open AI or AI or whatever you want to call it? I'd say eclipsed more than replaced. Um, I do think there's a place for social media because we all want to interact with family and friends uh, digitally uh, in a world where we normally spread far apart and we can't see each other that often. So I think social media is, is not going to die, uh, but it will cease to play the defining role um, in our lives uh, as we engage with, uh, with content. I think it continues to play a role where we engage with each other. Do you so think that, uh, Elon Musk is regretting not buying OpenAI? For that $44 billion, he could have bought the whole thing rather than Twitter, which, as you say, is probably going to start again. Your tweet of the week is an Elon Musk tweet. Uh, he's been on the tweet of the week many times in the past. What, what is the tweet of the week this week, Keith? This is the Dave Rubin I referred to earlier. And this, this is a person who was a critic of what Musk was doing. And Musk, uh, being Musk, said to him, well, come, come in and take a look. And he, he put a, two hours on, on, on the side, one, uh, split into two different visits both of which happened after midnight, which tells you how hard Musk is working. And um, this guy then did uh, a very long tweet thread. This is just the opening uh, tweet of the thread, which, um, which recounted uh, how committed Musk is to changing Twitter from a partisan center-left censorship engine into a, a town square, a proper town square. And he seems to be really committed to it, even at the expense of losing his money. He doesn't really care about that, or at least doesn't appear to. 
A lot of it's other people's money. Um, and I mean, everybody knows that Elon Musk is neither good nor evil, that he was idolized before, then he's become vilified. I mean, he's captured, he seems to be a man who's captured all the very best and all the very worst aspects of Silicon Valley and startup culture, hasn't he, Keith? Uh, my guess is he was born with the worst aspects and has learned the good aspects. Because uh, he, you know, I don't know if you've heard his background, but um, crosses over a lot with mine. He, he, he had um, a very violent father uh, who was violent both to his mother and to Elon, super violent, by the way, to the point of beating him almost to death. And he grew up alienated from family with an attitude, as you, as you would expect you might. And he was super smart, which his mother encouraged. So he's this kind of uh, hybrid between um, uh, uh, um, a kind of a punished, hurt person and um, an ambitious, creative, clever person. So if, uh, if unicorns were people, would Elon Musk be a unicorn, an impossible combination? He, he is. He's a, he's a one in, one in um, some large number. Uh, and that's why he's successful. He thinks out of the box. Uh, he's not scared of taking risk. He isn't afraid of huge challenges. And just by force of personality alone, um, he's get, he gets people to back him with money, which then allows him to turn those ideas into reality. He's yeah, and I think the one thing I admire about him is he clearly, I don't think he cares about the money, and I don't think he cares if he loses. He knows that he can have another shot. So yeah. if, if Twitter goes bust, he'll just move on to the next thing. You had an interesting piece about, uh, also in the newsletter, about now it's a great time to raise seed funding. It's always good to start in these droughts uh, when everyone else is scared off, which is an interesting segue to our final feature of, of the show today, which is your startup of the week, which is not really a startup, it's Substack. What is Substack doing? I know you have a particular soft spot for Substack. Um, perhaps ex before we get to Substack's latest developments, perhaps explain why. What is it about Substack that, that makes it so interesting? And it, it resonates with a lot of writers and creatives, many of whom are actually on Substack, either as... Um, either as, as, as users, people trying to make money off it, or as, uh, as, as consumers? Yes, yeah, so, so Substack really is just an independent publishing platform. Uh, it goes beyond writing now because it can do audio and video. Um, and it allows you to create a publication or, or even a set of publications um, and to, uh, to have subscribers who... Uh, either are for free or pay, and so you can build a business around your uh, around your creative efforts on Substack. That basically is the core of it. Uh, what they announced this week is extending that functionality into something they call private Substacks. An example of a private Substack would be um, uh, something that people will pay a lot for that contains information that's valuable. Um, uh, uh, and uh, would kind of join like a private members club to get access to that information. That now becomes possible with Substack. Where is Substack in terms of its financing and valuation? Uh, it last raised money over a year ago from Andreessen Horowitz and others. Um, I suspect uh, that it won't be able to get that the valuation that it achieved then back again now. 
So it would uh, it would serve Substack very well to grow its revenue to the point where it doesn't need to raise new money right now. That's probably good advice at any startup that can. Um, and <clears throat> and so uh, I think its its valuation is probably down from the last round. But as a business, using the money that it raised, it's a lot more substantive as a business than it was last time, and that probably means it can survive. And what does it challenge? Pub- big publishers, big big media, social media. What what, what space do you think it's really in, Substance? Well, it's a platform. So if you think of somebody like Barry Weiss, who used to work for the New York Times, for her, it replaces the New York Times as an employer. So talent doesn't need to be hired anymore if it if the talent can attract an audience all by itself that will pay for the content. So the first the first is talent it drains away from other places like Andrew Sullivan. Yeah, and, and, and Sullivan and Weiss are both, shall we say, counter-counter-cultural. They're certainly uh, sympathetic to Musk and the left-wing dominance of media. Is, is that the way that, do you think Substack's going? No, I think, I think you'll find all points of view on Substack, actually, uh, including religious people. I, I got asked this week to subscribe to a Substack that was about the second coming of Jesus Christ, or, or is it the third coming? Um, uh, so it's all over the map and it's, it's just an open platform for publishing and subscriptions and, and also increasingly for distribution. It has a very healthy internal network where, which is self-referential in that people recommend your publication if, uh, to readers of another publication and then you grow subscribers over time. Um, and, and honestly, I publish once a week. It's about two hours work for me to do that. I've now got well over uh, 3,000 subscribers on my Substack. Are they paying? Uh, they're all on paid plans, but some, mm. of them are, some of them are uh, given complimentary paid plans. That's part of my marketing. So when the paid plan expires, they either pay or they fall back to the free layer, which gives them a more limited content. The, the Justice Department nixed uh, Random House's uh, Bertelsmann's acquisition of Simon & Schuster. Wouldn't it make sense? There's been lots of rumors about uh, Musk buying Substack. Wouldn't it make sense for a big publisher to buy Substack? I think anybody who wants to host uh, creatives uh, and present them to an audience, uh, Substack is a fantastic asset, yeah. 